Okay. We're looking, as, as Dave mentioned before, we're continuing our series working through Acts. And we're looking this morning at Acts 4.32 through to chapter 6, verse 7, which is a large section of scripture to cover. We're not going to read it all at once right now, but we will read the beginning. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Acts 4, and I'm going to read from verse 32 through to chapter 5, verse 11. So verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias, Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I'm going to pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to again open up your word, to hear you, the Holy One, the God over all, speak to us this morning. Father, would you give us much grace? Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say this morning? Would you give us eyes to see that we would be granted greater illumination of how great a God you are, that as we walk through this historical narrative, these, these words that you have recorded for us, that we would come away affected in our heart of hearts, that we would come away as a church, as a community, compelled by your incredible love, compelled by who you are as we encounter you in your words. And would you give us, as we hear, 
knowledge and discernment in how we ought to therefore respond as well. In Jesus' name, Amen. A talented athlete is, is Anna Mears. She's an uh, Australian sprint cyclist. And she first started competing when she was about 11 years old. And she's very good. <laughs> I first, one of the stats that I was most impressed about was not necessarily the, the competitions that she won, was, was rather uh, that she could single leg press 235 kilograms, which for me was like, yeah... She's an impressive, talented athlete. She can also box jump. She's a metre, just over a metre 60 herself in height, and she can box jump, standing still up a metre 10, which again, I think, says something about how strong and powerful she is physically. And she's also an incredible athlete mentally. So she has faced uh, major accidents in her career where she's uh, had serious crashes, as, as some sprint cyclists do and she's fractured a vertebra in her neck. And things like that can be challenging, right, to then get back on the bike and race against other people. So mentally, there's that mental toughness. But the thing about Anna that I really like is, is uh, following her, her journey to London 2012 and hearing about her drive, her commitment, her passion, almost an obsession for one thing. So she'd, she'd won world championships. She had that. But almost like swimming. You know, in swimming, we, I have no idea who wins the world championships in swimming because for, for us Australians, it's, we care most about winning the Olympics, it seems. And for Anna, that was what was important for her, to win gold at the London 2012 Olympics. Now, being an incredible athlete, being the current world champion, you'd think, that's no worries, right? And yet, as, as great as Anna is, many things came her way that made it challenging. Many things came, if you like, brought her under attack, under pressure to achieve what she wanted. And yet she remained focused. Her desire, her obsession never wavered to win gold. Three things specifically uh, came her way. Firstly, it's obviously uh, an event where you compete against people. And the local champion, the British girl, Victoria Pendleton, was fast, real fast, probably the fastest. But it's, but it's an event where you need tactics as well and you need to be mentally tough to work out a way to overcome not just being fast but to win the race. And so the, the challenge of very good rivalry, uh, rivals was in there and, and required Anna to think, how can I overcome that to achieve my desire? Secondly, there's, as I mentioned, Niggling injuries. Whenever an athlete has an injury that's happened in the past, the challenge is to overcome that and mentally think, am I going to injure myself again if I push myself too hard in training? To, to time yourself so that your body peaks when you need it to and, and doesn't re-injure if you like. And that can be hard to mentally think, am I going to fall here? Am I going to, if I tweak my leg, is it going to pull a hamstring again if I push myself too much? There's the challenge of past injuries playing on her mind. But perhaps the greatest attack that she came on, came under, was externally. See, the British media were obviously big fans of Victoria Pendleton. And the rivalry between Anna and Victoria was, was beat up massively in the local media. And they attacked Anna. She came under massive attack. So if you would read the, the papers and their reports, 
She was being personally attacked. Her appearance was being attacked. Her relationships were being attacked. And for Anna to to block out all these attacks, to remain set, resolved, obsessed with one thing, and it didn't matter what you threw at her, that was what she wanted. And nothing was going to distract her. Nothing was going to take her eyes off that one goal. And so when it came to the actual race, she had her plan. She was focused. When it came to actually racing, it didn't matter what had come her way. It didn't matter the attacks that had come against her. For one thing was important to her, and that one thing only, to win gold, which she eventually won. We're looking at a a chunk of scripture this morning, and we're going to see a church that is committed to one thing. We're going to see a church that is obsessed, is is resolved, has one desire. We encounter a church that is committed to God's gospel. And it almost doesn't matter what comes their way. It doesn't matter how much they might be attacked in all different directions. Because this church is set. This church is committed to God's gospel, whatever comes their way. We're going to walk through this and look at how the church walks under attack but remains focused. And we're going to see, if you like, three specific attacks that the local church here in Acts comes under. Three points, if you like, as we walk through this text. The first one is is a church attacked internally, within. The second point will be that a church is a church attacked externally. And the third point is how a church is attacked by the challenge of change. So three points, a church that is attacked internally, a church that is attacked externally, and the third point is a church that is attacked by the challenge of change. So let's walk through that. Let's begin at the start. And the first point, a church that is attacked internally. It's, it's great, the picture of the church that we're given in chapter 4, verse 32 and following. It's a, it's a lovely picture. It's the picture of, of a wonderful church. Look with me at what we discover in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. It's this wonderful picture of unity, isn't it? And it's not just a church united. It's that they share common interests. They, they are united in what they want in their desire and their commitment to God's glory and God's gospel going forth, in proclaiming the gospel to each other and in such wanting to proclaim the gospel to others. They're united. It's beautiful. But they're not just, that's not just one of the things that stands out. The next thing for me that stands out as we look at the early church is that there's no one in need. The generosity of this church is is beautiful as well. It is incredible how generous they are that that there are people in this church that are so giving that we find out no one in this church is in need. And we're given this example of one particular character, Barnabas, and and how he, in, in his pursuit to care for the church, in his pursuit for the glory of God, gives generously, lays all the profit of his selling at the feet of the apostles. Not self-seeking, not self-serving, but doing it with a desire for God's glory. Doing it with a commitment to God's gospel. But as John Stott says, 
it's not all romance and righteousness. For as we dive into the first verse of chapter 5, we actually come across people in this church, believers who wish to appear like Barnabas, they wish to appear generous, but really in their heart of hearts they aren't like Barnabas. They want to play act like Barnabas as if they want the glory of God, but really they want their own glory. They want it to come to them as if they are like Barnabas and they want to enjoy that for their glory. Look with me at 5.1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds only proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it's interesting because they were hoping to appear to the church to be like Barnabas, to be someone who is incredibly generous, but they didn't actually want to be incredibly generous. They were play-acting, they were pretending to be Barnabas when they really weren't. And what, what happens is, is Peter somehow, we don't know how, whether it was the look on Ananias' face or whether it was God giving him, intervening and giving him a prophetic revelation, Peter somehow can read that, that they're lying here, that they haven't actually brought the full amount whilst they're saying they're bringing it. And Peter calls them on it and calls them on it and says, actually, what, you, what you're doing here is being hypocritical. You're trying to be someone you're not. And, and Peter actually says, why are you doing that? What's, what's the problem here? The problem isn't that you must give everything. Because he says in verse 4, it's, it's your money to do as you want. It's not that the early church was obligated to give everything. The issue here is that they're play-acting. The issue here is within this church, the issue is arising that, that people want to appear godly when they're not really. They want to pretend to be someone that they're not. They want to appear as if they're not struggling with something that they really are. They want the people in the church to think they are someone that they are not. You might call that a hypocrite or play acting or pretending. And so the early church is under attack because of that. The core is there are people within that church who want to appear to be someone they're not. I heard this story from a lecturer. He shared this article that came out of the Telegraph in the UK in about 2004 and he shared it with me about a man called Matthew Richardson. Matthew Richardson, the student who was studying engineering at Oxford in the UK. And Matthew Richardson had had been asked at different points uh, by a business that, that runs seminars for high school students to come and lecture and run seminars for students. And so one day he was actually asked, oddly enough, being an engineering student, to, to deliver some lectures on business and economics. And, and this w- was a unique opportunity because it was actually to, to lecture high school students in China and they would pay for him to fly over there. And so he actually got a year 12 or 6th form in the UK textbook, uh, a business studies economics textbook, and prepared a two-hour presentation thinking that he would be speaking to students in year 12 uh, and just speaking for two hours and then the next group would come in and he could do the same presentation over and over again for three days. When he landed, 
it soon became apparent that the students he was going to lecture, they weren't high school. They were students studying uh, for their PhD in economics. And it soon became apparent that he wasn't going to be just lecturing for two hours to a group and then a new group would come in, but that he was going to be talking to the same group of students for three days. See, Matthew Richardson, the student at Oxford, didn't know that he shares the same name as one of the leading authorities in international market. <laughs> Matthew Richardson, the professor at New York University. And, and being an engineer, for whatever reason, he just thought, well, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and so he actually got the textbook and tore out the chapters to pretend they were his notes. And off he went. He lectured and lectured and, and, and even got good feedback. Some of the students were saying how they really enjoyed how, how he was simplifying everything. <laughs> and he was going great till about halfway through the second day he realised he was up to chapter 15 of a 16 cha- uh, chapter book. And he was worried and thinking, what am I going to do? And so by the second day at afternoon tea, he went back to his room, grabbed his bags and legged it to the, to the airport. Here he was, Matthew Richardson, pretending to be someone he wasn't. Pretending to be someone he wasn't. Pretending to be the professor. Pretending to appear like he knew all this information that he actually didn't. He was play-acting. He was pretending. And, And we find it humorous, and perhaps that's because we're so used to doing it ourselves, But when we come to Acts 5, God doesn't treat play acting in a humorous way. Let's have a look at how God treats play acting. Look with me at verse 4 again. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then subsequently we hear about how his wife comes in and again is told how she's actually lying to the Holy Spirit. She's lying to God by play acting, to pretending to be godly when she's not, trying to appear like she carries virtue which she doesn't. And again, God intervenes mightily in this early church and strikes her down. And if that doesn't overwhelm you, like it did me when I first read it, then I don't know what's going on. Because in the New Testament, I'm not used to reading things like that. Perhaps in the Old Testament, but when I encounter that in the New Testament, it shocks me. And I think as I've pondered this and thought about this throughout the week, it's confronted with me with how comfortable I am with my own sin. It's confronted me with the reality that perhaps I can deal with my sin humorously when God treats it seriously. I know all too well how, how I want to appear to you guys even as I'm up the front like I am someone who I'm not. I know all too well what it's like to sit in a life group and be asked a direct question and, and try and Answer it in a way that I don't have to share all that that might be going on. 
When I'm asked about how I'm struggling with something, I might deliver an answer that paints it quite well when the reality might be quite different. I know all too well how I can play act and try and give people the impression that I'm godly when the reality is sin is rife in my life and the reality is it is only the mercy and the grace of God that I am not struck down. It is only that one was struck down in my place and I put my trust in him that I am not struck down. Later on in this uh, chapter, we, we encounter how Peter is preaching and he speaks, verse 30, 31, 32, about Christ Jesus, my Lord and your Lord, and how he dies, how Ananias and Sapphira died, Christ Jesus dies where I ought to, is struck down on a cross where I ought to have been, that I might know full forgiveness of sins, full forgiveness. And I think all too often grace isn't amazing because I have grown way too comfortable with sin. And I hope for you and for me, Acts chapter 5 overwhelms us with how seriously God takes sin. But as we look at the cross and see that actually the Son of God had to die for your sin, it's pretty serious stuff, guys. Offending a holy God is not humorous. Lying to a holy God is not a joke. He is the almighty God over all, the sovereign one, giver of life and health and breath. And all too easily, I shun him and think that doesn't matter. All too easily, I compete with him as if he's a mere rivalry and bring him down to about that big so that it's fine for me to tell people I'm someone I'm not and play at and think that that's okay. And and God intervenes swiftly here because the effects on the early church could be devastating. See, we have a picture of a beautiful church with great fellowship and now the attack is internal, the temptation to play act and pretend, to to diminish the holiness of God as if it doesn't matter if we, we sin a little bit, it doesn't matter if we lie a little bit, It just matters if we present ourselves well, but it doesn't matter. But holiness is serious. God's holiness is serious and sin is serious. And the effects on our fellowship can be devastating. It can actually affect us as we diminish the gospel. And so it doesn't seem so serious to then take that beautiful gospel to the lost. But as God swiftly deals with it in this early church... They're overcome with an awe and fear again of an almighty God. And the result, verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Verse 12, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And and following to verse 16, The people gathered from towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits that were all healed. Great things were happening. Verse 14, many believers were being added to this early church. And, and that's an overflow, if you like, of a church that now recognises God's holy. It is the overflow of a church who now realises that their allegiance is to Him. That it isn't about seeking self-fame. 
and caring overly about how you guys perceive me. My concern, my desire, my, what, I, what I'm determined to, to live my life for ought to be his name, not mine. And if my name looks like it's dragged through the mud, it doesn't matter because my actual resolve is his name, to live for him. It's a church that is not committed to, to appearing like they're a group of, of great people. It's a church that's committed to something far greater than that. They're committed to God and to his gospel. That's what's going to drive this church. And the overflow is wonderful. People are added. This is a church who they themselves fear God and respect him as a great and mighty God. And out they go, fearless of people, full of fear of the awesome God. So I suppose... I want to encourage you in light of that, guys. May we be a church committed to God's gospel, whatever comes. May we be a church that humbly shares and confesses our struggles honestly. It's okay not to be perfect because we then come as a church before a perfect God who sent a perfect saviour, whose sacrifice was perfect perfect satisfaction for all our faults. Whether it's a life group, whether it's a Christian friend that you meet up with regularly, let's stop play acting. Let's stop pretending. And let's be a church that's real with each other in our relationships. And let's fear an awesome holy God more than we fear our names looking bad. Let's seek his name being glorified, not my name looking good. A church committed to God's gospel, whatever comes its way. Well, something else does come its way. It's not just internal attack. It's not just an internal issue that, is, needs to, that could, could distract them from their desire, their resolve. But externally, they come under fire. Externally, they come under attack. Externally, uh, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, having seen all that they're doing, all these wonderful miracles, having seen many people coming to, to esteem the church and greatly value the Christians, they don't respond well. Let's have a look. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. The Jewish leaders are jealous, perhaps they're fearing that they're losing control of the people. And so they get the apostles and they force them into jail. The political pressure is now on the church. The external attack now is is outside of them. And maybe it's, it's the cultural challenge to the church. Maybe it's, it's that they're going to be ridiculed by outside of the church. There's going to be pressure on them from people who are not believers. Let's see how they respond. Here they're put into jail. But God intervenes again, just like God intervened in the internal attack. This early church experiences God wonderfully intervening again, that they might again depend all that they are on the God who is over all, even this external attack. And God sends an angel to them. 
And the miracle is that the angel opens the doors of the jail and then exhorts them and encourages them in just like Anamias who was dedicated and focused and and did not waver in, in her commitment. The angel exhorts them, guys, carry on. Do not be distracted by the external attack. Whatever comes your way, go and preach. Carry on in your commitment to God's gospel. Do not waver, but remain focused and committed, obsessed with what is important. And so, off they go and they preach. And let's see what happens. The Jewish leaders, rather than being overwhelmed by what happened and the fact that this miracle has occurred and an angel has come and set them free, Again, they don't see that. They're just annoyed that they have, have not been listened to. They haven't been obeyed. And so they round them up again and bring them in. Look at me at verse 29, how they react. What does Peter do? Peter and the apostles answer the Jewish leaders and they say, we must obey God rather than men. And then he speaks the gospel. The God of our fathers who raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We see that again this resolve, this commitment that they have as an early church, despite what is going on, despite the external attack We see that, if you like, as we've heard before, as Paul understands these things, it's almost like light and momentary troubles. For they're not worried or concerned about men now. Their commitment is not about what the external pressure might come their way. For they don't obey men, they obey God. And it's the gospel that is grounded them in this. It's knowing how their identity is in Christ that people who were once sinners deserving of God's wrath and judgment have now been adopted to be called God's sons and daughters, have now been forgiven and justified as if they had never sinned in God's sight. Their identity is that. Their identity is not about what the external pressures might be. It is not wavered or affected by what comes against them. For who they are is strong and firm in the gospel and they will obey God first and foremost. Again, we encounter a church that is committed, that its allegiance is to God and his name, to God and his fame. When it seems hopeless and they consequently end up being beaten up and bashed, it doesn't matter to them. For them, they actually end up praising God that they could even be among those who are worthy. For them, it's not physical comfort. It's his name. For them, it's not popularity amongst those around them. It's his popularity. For them, it's not obedience to external authorities. It's not submitting to political powers. It's submitting to God. It's seeing him exalted and lifted up. It is a church that is unwavering in their commitment to God and his gospel, whatever comes their way. 
even under serious attack. I wonder what attacks you outside of church. Maybe it's the work colleague who mocks your Christian faith. Maybe it's the family who don't understand your commitment and your time that you put into serving your church. Maybe you're finding it difficult, more and more difficult as culture swings more and more in a way that makes it hard to be a Christian and beliefs are becoming more and more common that are quite contrary to what a Christian might hold or believe. Maybe it's the ridicule that Christianity receives in the media. Does that cause you to feel attacked? Here we see the apostles did not compromise in what they believed, did not compromise in who they obeyed. Their resolve, their obsession, their commitment, their their allegiance was to God and his gospel. How do you walk through attack? Do you feel tempted to give up, to compromise? May we, like Peter, preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to yourself first, who you are in Christ, that you might be all the more reminded that we might be a church committed to God's gospel, whatever comes our way, that we might stand firm in him, that we might be a church committed to God's gospel and taking that forth in in this state, in this city. Well, thirdly, we encounter a church that is not only attacked internally, not only attacked externally, but we encounter a church that comes under the challenge of change. See, when we first read this morning about the church in verse 432, we heard about a church that specifically two things, a church that is, is united, one in heart and one in mind. And it's beautiful. And then we hear about a church that is generous. There's no one in that church who is needy. They're generous and they're caring and loving each other. And from 4.32 through to now 6 verse 1, many people have heard the gospel and responded and the church has grown. And the challenge of growth, we know all too well too, can come upon a church in a way that can attack it. And the two things that that were prominent and beautiful in in our first pitch of the church, we now see come under attack and challenged. We now see complaints arising. We now see people who have needs not being met. Look with me at verse 6.1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Complaints are coming upon the church and people are being neglected. The circumstances have changed. It's a new environment now. There's more people here. How will the disciples react? Will they 
be distracted from what their commitment is, from what their resolve is, from what their main passion and obsession is? Will they be distracted? There's a tennis player called Rafael Nadal, and he's a great player. But when, we, when he first came on the scene in international tennis, he was a clay court specialist. And when it came to playing on clay court, he was brilliant. But then you change the environment, and his game was the same, and he would lose. He wasn't as good on grass. But Rafael Nadal, he had a passion and an obsession and a desire and a resolve just to win. And so when eventually, with that desire and that obsession and his commitment to win, he had to adapt his game depending on the environment. That he would remain committed to winning whatever the environment. And so he learned, if you like, that, that in different situations he would play differently, but he would play in a manner that was not changing what he wanted, just to win. So that he eventually became a brilliant player whatever environment. He just adapts and plays well whether it's clay court or grass, whatever the situation, he would adapt and just be resolved that he just wanted to win. didn't matter what the environment was. Here again we see a church that, like Raphael, is just willing to adapt because its main focus is the gospel. When it could have been easy to be distracted by the complaints, when it could have been easy to take a detour from what they wanted, to, to, to then seek just to serve the needy. Let's see how the apostles deal with this. Let's read verse 3 and 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you... Oh, so let's read verse 2, sorry. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So now as I've realised from in 4.32, they were really good on clay court, but now they're on grass. And they do not want to hinder or change. Their obsession is to to promote the gospel. Their, Their commitment is to God and his gospel. And so here the apostles adapt their game. The church adapts amidst all all that is changing, but they don't compromise their commitment. They do not waver or change that their resolve is still to preaching the gospel. And so God intervenes, if you like, giving the wisdom to make wise administrative changes where they could have been distracted, where they could have been overwhelmed with what needed to be done, that their eyes were taken off the main task, their main commitment. This church remains a church, whatever happens, even through change, to be a church committed to God and his gospel. We're a church who knows all too well change. We're a church that when I first joined Sovereign Grace was 12 families. 12 families were represented and some have gone and we, and we rejoice that they've gone to other churches that serve them well. Uh, but many have come. Structures, structures have changed. 
the way we do Sundays have changed. We're constantly changing in our life groups, whether it's new life groups or new people being added to old life groups. The dynamics are always changing. And it can be tempting in change to be distracted. It can be tempting in the change to take our eyes off what we're actually committed to. It can be tempting for things like that, the the change that has come to us as a church, whether it's changing as we're going to find next year locations or changing locations for a day or the challenge that I find with Soggy is is, uh, as we rock up most weeks there's desks in the hall where we're trying to play games. Change is hard but we must be resolved and committed to actually why we exist as a church. We must seek to remind ourselves, as Peter does, as the apostles did, of our first commitment. The gospel is what brings us, what unites us as a church. How easy it would be to be distracted by the change. And it it is hard. It is hard at times. How easy it would be to be caught up in complaint. But may we, with the gospel, find our identity in the gospel. May we proclaim the gospel to ourselves in that moment. Remind ourselves of what is first importance to us. Christ died for our sins. That our identity would be in that, not in the location. Our identity would be in in what God thinks of us. Our comfort would be in that we are forgiven of sins, regardless of the comfort of our location or the comfort of a life group changing dynamics. That our ultimate joy and comfort would be in that, in the gospel that our allegiance to him would be unwavering whatever comes our way. For the church we encounter in Acts is that. A church committed to God and his gospel. And we see in this a church that, that is added to regularly. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm not a massive gardener. But uh, every now and then, we have a house inspection on the house that we rent, and we want to try and get rid of some of the weeds. And I'll be honest, Bianca does a lot of that. But, but I try and help. And I, you know what I, <laughs> you know what I, I find I don't like? It's dirt. <laughs> I don't like dirt. I don't like how it gets stuck under your nails. I don't like the reality that there's heaps of things crawling in and around dirt. Uh, it, it seems to be the place that the local bunny rabbits and possums urinate and, and, and do number twos. It's, it's all through our dirt anyway. And it's just it's like a little bit of rain and it's, it's just even worse. I don't like dirt. It, it easily comes inside. It affects our kids get it all over their clothes. Dirt's not cool. All right. <laughs> And yet, it's in dirt, it's in dirt that beautiful things arise out of it. Flowers, beautiful flowers. So we've got a rose bush and in this disgusting dirt that I don't like, <laughs> out of the dirt comes beautiful red roses. I want, I want us to be like a red rose, that, that whatever comes our way, whatever disgusting attacks we might be under, Whatever environment or circumstance or situation, we will be beautiful as a church that seeks 
to glorify God that seeks Him and His gospel. And that we would see many people come to this church and see the beauty that is God and His gospel. That whilst there may be many ickiness and creepy crawlies and things that, are, that make it difficult, our resolve and our commitment in Christ would actually make us beautiful and an aroma that, that just spreads through this city, the beautiful aroma of Christ. I'll tell you what, it can be tempting to give up when you're weeding because it's not nice. And it can be tempting to give up when you're under attack as a Christian in the pursuit of holiness or the challenge of sin in my life or the challenge of other people's sin in my church, it can be tempting to just waver and be distracted and give up. And i tell you what, if it, was, if it was all about my name looking good, I'd give up. But, but it's not. It's about him and his name. My allegiance isn't to myself. The gospel shows me who I am and who God is. That I might live a life for him and his name and his greatness. If it was, if it was all about comfort, every time I'd be ridiculed by, the ex, by the, uh, those outside of the church, I'd probably give up. But for me, it's not about it what they think of me. It's about what he thinks of me. My identity in him. That I can be resolved and committed to carry on whatever happens, whatever anyone else out there thinks of us. If it was about comfort in church, every time things got difficult and there was another change in circumstances in the church, it would be too much and I'd give up. But it's not about personal comfort of how things go. If, if we lost the coffee, I'd still come to church. <laughs> because it's not about my personal comfort. My resolve, my allegiance is to God and His gospel. And as we read through Acts in this section of Scripture, we see a church that is united in that commitment united in that resolve that whatever happens in out there in that dirty world, if you like, we see in us a beautiful rose. We see something special and we see God using this church. Many have been added to it. I pray that we would be a church like that. I pray that we would be a church that whatever comes our way, our resolve and our, our commitment would be to the gospel, to God and his gospel. And we might see God do something beautiful in this city. Let me pray for, to that end. Lord, you are God over all. You're an, a mighty and, and glorious God. And we find ourselves under attack internally, externally, the challenge of change, Lord. We find ourselves living in, a, in environments and situations where it could be tempted to give up. Lord, strengthen our resolve this morning. Strengthen our commitment to the gospel, to you as king and proclaiming your gospel. And may Sovereign Grace Church Sydney be effective in the mission as we remain committed to you and your gospel.
Amen.